Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tales of Fae and Folklore. You might have noticed that I haven't done an episode on the Fae for some time. Well, after my episode on house fairies and brownies, I had a strange bout of bad luck. I'm not a clumsy person by nature, but this particular week I managed to trip going up the stairs, hit my head on the car door, slip in the kitchen, and scratch my cheek and arm. It's very silly and most likely a coincidence, but I've never in my life been so clumsy and had so many incidents in such a short time. Perhaps the house fairies didn't like me talking about them. Today, however, I am jumping right back into a popular fae legend, the changeling. In Scotland, Ireland, and many places of Europe, there have been stories of changelings, fairies, that would come and steal your baby, replacing it with a fairy that resembled the child. Sometimes the fae child would be sickly or temperamental. They would sometimes pass away, leaving the stricken parent at a loss for how to get their child back from the fairies. They say they would take the human child to strengthen the fairies. The child would grow up with them and mix their bloodlines. In many stories, there is a chance to get your loved one back. You can make the changeling laugh, or threaten to burn it in a fire, at which point it will reveal itself and run away. One such story is titled, A Changeling Musician. A family at Dalby, which is in the Isle of Man, had a poor baby who was born slow and had disabilities. When it had grown to the age of 20, it still sat by the fire, staring, like a child, unable to speak or walk or respond. A tailor came to the house to work one day when all the folks were out cutting corn, and the 20-year-old child was left with him. The tailor began to whistle as he sat at the table sewing. The boy, sitting at the fire, slowly turned to him, looked him in the eye, and said, If you'll not tell anybody when they come in, I'll dance that tune for you. So the little fellow began to dance, and he could step it out splendidly. Then he said to the tailor, If you'll not tell anybody when they come in, I'll play the fiddle for you and the tailor and the boy spent a very enjoyable afternoon together. But before the family came in from the fields, the poor boy, as usual, sat back down in his chair staring at the fire, the big baby who could hardly talk. When the mother came in, she happened to say to the tailor, You've a fine chap here, referring to the boy. Yes, indeed, said the tailor. We've had a very fine afternoon together but I think we had better make a good fire and put him in it. Oh, cried the mother. The poor child can never even walk. Ah, but he can dance and play the fiddle too, replied the tailor. And the fire was made. But when the boy saw that they were for putting him on it, he pulled from his pocket a ball, rolled it on ahead of him, and going after it, disappeared. He was never seen again.
This story was compiled by W.Y. Evans Wentz in a book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. He compiled stories from people's personal experience. This one was told to him by a Mrs. Moore. He continues that, after the strange story was finished, I asked Mrs. Moore where she had heard it, and she said, I've heard this story ever since I was a girl. I knew the family and the house that it happened to, and so did my mother. The family's name was Cubbin. This was in 1911. This next story is titled The Brewery of Eggshells by T. Crofton Croker, Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland. But I have found a version of this story all over. I'm sure it's been told and retold. Mrs. Sullivan fancied that her youngest child had been exchanged by fairy theft. And certainly appearances warranted her conclusion. For in one night, her healthy blue-eyed boy had become a shriveled up creature, like that of a tiny old man. He never ceased crying and screaming. Mrs. Sullivan was full of sorrow, wondering what had happened to her poor child. Many neighbors would advise her on what to do with the changeling. Burn it, they'd say. Poke it with iron. Throw it on the roadside. But Mrs. Sullivan did not want to hurt it. Finally, an old woman offered her some advice. It may seem foolish to you, she warned, but Mrs. Sullivan was eager to try anything to get her boy back. She told her to boil a large pot of water on the fire and take a dozen fresh eggs. Break the eggs, keep the shells but dispose of the yolk and egg whites. Put the shells in the water to make a brew. When it is done, you will know whether it is your own boy or a fairy. Mrs. Sullivan went home and did just what the old woman advised. She boiled the pot and began cracking the eggs and boiling the shells. For the first time, the child ceased crying and screaming. It poked its head out of the crib, cocking its eyebrows. At last he asked, in the voice of an old man, What are you doing, Mama? Mrs. Sullivan's heart was in her throat at hearing the child speak. Her child was just a baby and had yet to say its first word. She knew now for certain it was a fairy and not her boy. She responded, I'm making a brew. And what are you brewing, Mama? said the little imp. I'm brewing eggshells, she replied. Oh, cried the imp, standing up in his crib, clapping his hands together. I'm 1,500 years old and I've never seen a brewery of eggshells before. Mrs. Sullivan grabbed the hot poker from the fire and ran towards the cradle, ready to fight the imp. But as she went, she slipped, dropping the poker. However, when she got up a second or two later, she saw her own child fast asleep, plump and healthy, like he had never left. Not all changeling stories involve babies. Sometimes, grown adults are taken as well. So pay attention to those around you. They might be an imposter. One such unfortunate misunderstanding happened in March 1895. 
Michael Cleary became convinced that his wife Bridget Cleary had been taken by the fairies and a changeling was left in her place. His reasons were strange, saying things like, she is too fine to be my wife, in reference to her physical beauty. She became ill with bronchitis and fever. The doctor came and went thinking all was well. Her fever worsened and her husband burned her with hot pokers to make her take her medicine, which was not the doctor's medicine, but one Michael had concocted himself. He subjected her to many tests and eventually burned her alive, thinking it would bring back his wife. It did not. These legends are fascinating, but we should keep in mind that some of these cases most likely had to do with postpartum depression and other mental issues. That being said, I will finish with one final story of a man's encounter with a changeling. My wife Carla, my sons and I live on a rural property. We have neighbors in walking distance and there is a hamlet a short drive away. Our creepy experience happened five years ago. It is something I haven't told a lot of my friends and family. My wife and I hardly discuss it even though we experienced it together. And every day I hope my eldest son is forgotten. Our youngest son will never be told. Or perhaps it's wrong to say it happened five years ago. Maybe it all started nine years ago. It is impossible to confirm whether the incidents are linked, but it has always felt like too much of a coincidence to me. My wife, then pregnant with our eldest son Patrick, was mugged on her way home from the train station to the London apartment we were living in at the time. It was dark. She was hit over the head, dragged to an alley, and by some miracle saved when a woman in a nearby building came outside to empty her rubbish bin. The attacker got away when the woman called the police and yelled that they were on her way. The attacker didn't even manage to make off with Carla's purse. But when the police interviewed Carla, when she told me about it later, it turned out the assailant had not been after money or her phone or her car keys. The purse was cast aside. They had a long curved knife at her pregnant belly and had told her, I'm taking him back over and over again. She had not seen their real face, could not distinguish their sex from their voice or stature, and could remember precious little else due to the disorienting blow to the back of her head. They had worn a rubber mask of some creature she did not recognize, like a goblin or troll, something fantastical, horrific, and impossible she had written in her statement. Five years later, winter had draped its frosty tendrils across the landscape, but we were snug inside our warm, well-lit cottage. We had spent the previous year since our arrival renovating it and publishing the progress in a magazine. Our son Patrick was four years old and my wife had just given birth to our second son, Charlie, three months earlier. It was late evening, though it could have been the dead of night for all the snow outside. 
I was in the kitchen making a pumpkin risotto. Charlie was asleep upstairs. Nothing but sleepy quietness came through the baby monitor perched on the dining room table. I remember Carla and I were laughing about an upcoming article I was working on about the local knitting group. The women in the group were certainly enthusiastic about their craft, but by no means talented, and poor Carla was going to have to find something aesthetically pleasing to photograph. All of a sudden, Pat came running out of the den and collided straight into Carla's legs, hugging them in a vice grip. He nearly knocked his mother over. He wasn't crying though, he was shaking. And Carla crouched down and he hid his face into her shoulders. He didn't want to look up. He wasn't saying anything. Had he hurt himself? Did the cat scratch him? Had he broken something while playing? We told him he wasn't in trouble, we just wanted the truth. But he shook his head. Usually he never stops chatting. Carla tried to take him back to his Lego, but Pat didn't cry in Pat began to cry in earnest. She took him to the lounge room. I went to check out the den. Nothing seemed out of order. Pat had been making a Lego tower, balancing his plastic dinosaurs on top. I turned the radio off. He thinks he saw someone at the window, Carla said. She shrugged and foraged in the fridge for the cheese. I shook off an involuntary shudder. Just the idea of some stranger peering in gave me the heebie-jeebies. In a snowstorm like this, roads closed, phone lines down, a Stephen King novel on my nightstand, it didn't take long for my imagination to fill in the blanks. Well, the curtains were open, I said. Oh, come on, you don't think there's actually someone out there in this weather. He was daydreaming. Carla had always been the rational one. No, of course not. Are the curtains in the lounge room closed though? Better he doesn't have a chance to imagine anything else. Yes, they are. Okay, I kissed her on the cheek and sliced the bread for the grill. Pat was curled in the corner of the sofa, feet tucked under him, arms wrapped around his chest, staring at the fire, as if divining a supernatural source of information from it. I sat beside him and watched the flames licking up the side of the blackened log. I gave him a nudge. He ignored me, so I nudged him again. What's wrong, buddy? Can you hear them, he said. Hear who? Mummy? The clatter of the knife in the kitchen. They are singing, he said. Completely tone deaf and with a voice like a bullfrog, I knew it wasn't my wife. We would have heard that. Then I began to hear it. It did sound like singing. The cresting high notes sounded like a bell, but words were incomprehensible. Or maybe it was humming. Or perhaps it was just the wind catching on the eaves of the house as it whistled past. I strode to the window regardless and pulled open the curtains. Through the frosted plains in the murky gray light, I thought I saw a silhouette. My heart leapt into my throat. The humming noise stopped before the figure was swallowed by a swirl of snow and I could see nothing, even when I pressed my face to the glass. I'm not going to lie, I thought I was going mad at that moment. When I went back to the kitchen and Carla asked me what was wrong, 
I couldn't find the words to answer her until finally I spat out, I saw someone at the window. Oh, for goodness sake, don't encourage him. I was about to defend myself when there was a distinct knock at the door. We both jumped. I could see my own surprise mirrored in Carla's face. The sound came again, three loud, confident knocks. I went to answer it. Carla hovered in the hallway, out of sight, listening. I opened the door a crack, bracing it with my foot. I couldn't see anyone. Or perhaps more accurately, I couldn't see anything. The snow was so thick, the darkness of the night so impenetrable. It was like looking directly into the visual equivalent of white noise. Wind was howling past in earnest now. I staggered back in a flurry of snow, still clinging to the door, while our neatly pegged coats billowed in the wind. Is anyone there? I yelled against the roar. I jumped and swore as the phone rang in the hall. Carla picked up the receiver. I used all my weight to force the door closed again. She said nothing, and then the name of the village we lived in, and then, are you okay? Can I help you? You won't get far in this weather. Where are you? I put my ear to the receiver to listen with her. I've already come so far, so far. Are you with anyone? There was no answer, just the crackling on the line. Are you alone? Carla tried. There you are, the voice at the other end said, like a man dying of thirst spotting an oasis. There you are. They repeated so softly I was sure I was imagining it. Was the crackling on the phone line getting worse? Do we know you? How'd you get this number? Carla was now getting afraid. Her hand snaked around my upper arm and gripped it tightly. You've been hiding from me, came the voice, suddenly clear, suddenly confident, no trace of the faint breathlessness of prior. Carla slammed the receiver back on the hook with such force it fell off the wall. I remember the look in her eyes, like a horse spooked by a snake, flitting wildly from my face to the door. For goodness sake, Steve, the phone lines are supposed to be out. What the hell was that? I realized she was right. I picked up the receiver again and there was no dial tone. None of the other phones in the house had rung, just the one in the hall near us. Charlie and Pat, I said. Carla nodded, strode towards the living room. I checked the door was locked and latched. Even in my mount mounting fear, I still felt vaguely ridiculous. What was happening? What exactly were we afraid of? From the dining room, I could see Carla pulling a blanket over Pat, who was still perched on the sofa staring at the fire. Suddenly, over the baby monitor, there was the sound of smashing glass and shattering wood. Carla shrieked and was halfway up the stairs before I even moved a muscle. The cloud-shaped nightlight we kept near his bed was not lit when we entered the room. In Carla's arms was a bundle of sticks wrapped in the pale blue knitted blanket Charlie was sleeping with. I took them from her, pawed through the sticks as if Charlie would somehow be hidden in between. They were still damp and chilled from the outside. Carla was at the window. Someone has taken him, Steve. We have to go after them. Her voice sounded like it was coming from a million miles away, my head spinning in panic. 
No, stay with Pat. I'll go. My own voice sounded just as distant, but amazingly I felt myself moving. In what seemed like the blink of an eye, I was pulling on my coat and Carla was handing me gloves and a hat. Be careful, she told me. It sounded like a threat. And then her brow furrowed. A weapon? She she suggested. (laughs) We didn't own a gun and I didn't fancy stumbling around the dark in the snow with a kitchen knife. We didn't even have a bat. Before I knew it, Carla was handing me the fire poker. I stepped over the threshold. The storm had abated somewhat, but the winds were still powerful enough that I immediately staggered to one side. I used the poker like a cane to steady myself. I realized that I was vastly underprepared and under-equipped to venture out in such weather, but I had no choice. Suddenly, the cottage behind me went dark. I whirled around. Carla was still at the door. The generator, she yelled. Stay by the fire, I yelled back. She didn't reply, but closed the door. I felt all at sea, cut off from the small safe island of my home. But our son had been taken. Leaning against the wall, I felt my way around the cottage to the place below the nursery. There was no trace of any footprints or marks to follow. Perhaps the snow had already done its work erasing any footprints. I began walking. I don't remember reaching the fence. I don't remember climbing over it. It's funny how memory works, especially when we are stressed and scared. Like I can't remember making it to the woods and crashing through the undergrowth, where the tightly knit boughs above me made for a thinner carpet of snow on the forest floor. Yet I remember that in my coat pocket I had an old waterproof watch and half a packet of polo mints. I remember worrying about Carla and Pat alone in the cottage, fearing that if Charlie was out here, he was cold. Hell, I even remember worrying about the cheese and toast I left on the grill. But I don't remember having a plan. I was just walking around aimlessly, branches whipping across my face. Eventually, and miraculously, I heard Charlie crying somewhere to my left. Had I found him by instinct or pure chance, I still don't know, though I leaned towards the ladder. I turned on my heel so fast, I left an indent in the frozen ground. His shrill cries echoed around me and I honed in on their origin and headed towards the sound. A figure was bent over the gnarled, exposed roots of a tree, and even in that moment my mind couldn't help but think of Carla bent over Charlie's crib that night. The stance was the same. The figure was hooded, dressed in black. I couldn't see Charlie, but I could hear him keening, grumbling in discomfort. Any parent will tell you that a baby's cries start off indistinguishable, but eventually you begin to discern moods and needs. Charlie was worried and frightened. I heard that much in his whimpering, and I was furious. Hey! What the hell are you doing? Somehow, despite the seriousness of the situation, I remember feeling ludicrous, my words ringing hollow in the cold air, a bad actor reading poor dialogue. Hey, I'm talking to you. Get the hell away from him. The figure tensed at my yelling and I realized they had not heard my approach. They did not turn, they only straightened upright. I heard a rasping noise 
it took a few seconds to realize it was a laugh. I took the poker in my hand and swung it at the figure. It screeched. The high-pitched sound made me drop the poker and cover my ears. Charlie began to scream in earnest. The figure, now on all fours, scurried away at an unnatural speed like an animal, crashing through the undergrowth like an enraged boar. I dropped to my knees, my rage seeping out from every pore of my being, replaced with exhaustion and disbelief, possessed by a sense of unreality. I crawled to Charlie, who was tucked into the roots of a tree on a bed of dry leaves. He was impossibly warm, wonderfully unharmed, rosy cheeks and eyes glittering, dark and curious. When I picked him up, his crying quieted. When I securely tucked him inside my jacket, it stopped entirely. I picked up the poker and wandered home in the direction of the cottage. Carla seemed exhausted, and so was I when I returned. She clutched Charlie to her chest in silent gratitude and relief. But where is Charlie? Pat kept saying, even though he stared at his brother. I remember that. The night's events had distressed the boy greatly. Why couldn't you find Charlie, Dad? Why didn't you bring him back? Charlie's right here. He's okay. We're all okay, Patty. Carla tried to reassure him, but he just kept asking, where's Charlie? We called the police when we were able. There wasn't a lot they could do since there was no description, no DNA, no links to anything. Perhaps I would have even thought it all a dream except for Carla and Pat the broken window in the room and strange bundle of sticks still scattered in the nursery. We increased the security around our cottage. Charlie never slept alone again as a baby. Pat, by his own choice, played nearby whenever Carla and I were. A few weeks later, we told the regulars at the local pub our story. A changeling, one of them told us, while a few others murmured agreement. I was furious that they would make light of the real trauma that my family had experienced by associating it with some local legend. Terrible fae folk who replaced babies with enchanted children. I was angry, and then they put up their hands and apologized. I don't know which I was more glad about. He stopped at that particular line of conversation or that he apologized, making light of it. Before we left, the bartender handed Carla something wrapped in a tea towel. Put these above your door. Open, mind you. It was a pair of old iron scissors. Iron like the poker. Carla did as she was told. We have been mercifully undisturbed since, and Charlie has grown into a healthy, normal young boy. Albeit much more quiet and reserved than his brother, and sometimes he stares into the distance. Not in a daydream, but like he's watching a cinema screen no one else can see. An enigmatic smile on his face, laughing at a joke that no one can hear. That last story was posted on Reddit nine years ago. 
A few of the lines were changed just so that it was easier for me to read. Um, and thank you so much for joining me, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If any of you have your own stories of strange experiences and would like to share your story on my podcast, email talesoffayandfolklore at gmail.com. You can also check out my blog at talesoffayandfolklore.wordpress.com. And don't forget to support your local library. Until next time, this has been Selena with Tales of Fae and Folklore.